Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 40, Bishop Trouble. Now my grandmother once told me never to apologise and never to explain. Have I told you that before? Well, anyway, I have to start this episode with both, unfortunately. In the last episode I described Henry II as a tyrant. Now my point really was that Henry had a vast amount of power that monarchs in later centuries could only dream of but Kim quite rightly posted a comment on my Facebook site pointing out that a good king, which Henry surely was, and a tyrant are surely incompatible. And yes, I think it's true, I'm guilty of an appalling inaccuracy in my use of terms. Plato defined a tyrant as someone who rules without law, looks to his own advantage rather than that of his subjects, and uses extreme and cruel tactics against his own people as well as others. Now this description certainly doesn't describe Henry, In fact, he was scrupulous in clarifying and improving the delivery of justice. So, Henry Fitzempress, please accept my humble apologies. Now, gentle listeners, I approach this week's episode with fear, dread and trepidation, because I need to talk this week about Henry and his relationship with the Church, and in particular with his Archbishop of six years, Thomas Beckett. I am constantly surprised about which key events of English history are known to the English. I'm not having a go at history education in general, you understand. It's just that there's a different focus now. So, for example, Simon de Montfort, a man who had a fundamental impact on English history, is a pretty unknown figure now. But Thomas Beckett is still right up there as a core part of every school child's education. Well, in England, that is to say. And so, to my fear and my dread, how on earth to retell a story so well told by so many people in so many ways? I feel very much the same, actually, as I did about 1066, and as I expect to feel when we get to Henry VIII. This is a path so well trodden that you may not want to tread it with me, and if so, I will understand. I'll be hurt, but I'll understand. 
I'm hoping that there are lots of you out there, not from England, who have absolutely no reason to know about Thomas Beckett, for whom it'll come as a great surprise. One of the things that did make me laugh, though, was that when I was writing this, I was finding out about a BBC poll in 2006, which asked people to vote on who was the worst Britain ever. I think what happened was that eminent historians and nominated people, and then over 5,000 people voted. Thomas Beckett came second after Jack the Ripper. So Thomas Beckett, only just a bit better than Jack the Ripper. Yehoi. I have to say I love this decision. Canterbury Cathedral waxed a comment about it and had some justification, I have to say, for describing the decision as eccentric as well as disappointing. Well, personally, I love it. To me, it speaks of the essential pragmatism and dislike of ostentation of the English, though I'm sure there are many other interpretations of the English available for those less uncritical of us English, of whom there are a few around, I have to say. Anyway, the thing that struck me hardest was just how difficult it is to understand Thomas's motivation and character. What was the bloke on, exactly? And I'm sure we'll never really know, or at least everyone will always have their own position on it. On the other hand, it seems pretty clear what Henry wanted. Thomas was your Archbishop of Canterbury from 1166 to 1172, and it's worth remembering that we are in Henry's green period, i.e. when he's still a pretty green ruler, when he's full of aggression and diplomatic solutions are not his first option. So let our first decision about the story of Henry and Thomas be to put it into the context of the time and all the other things going on in Henry's life. So these are the 60s. Henry is a young man in his 20s and early 30s. Two weeks ago, we talked about his early attempt to create an accord with King Louis, and for a while this has worked. But by 1160s, Louis of France knew what he was up against. The realisation came when Henry had attempted to seize control of Toulouse against the will of his overlord, King Louis. Louis had thrown himself into Toulouse just ahead of Henry, leaving Henry with the choice of being exposed as a barefaced aggressor against his feudal overlord or withdrawing gracefully, and Henry chose the graceful withdrawal method. But this didn't please Henry's firebrand of a chancellor, one Thomas Beckett. Thomas was all for ignoring the feudal niceties and getting stuck in there. Indeed, he'd played a major part in organising the whole expedition, personally leading a force of 700 knights. Given that the Chancellor was formerly supposed to be in charge of the King's writing office, this was a slightly odd role. So how had Beckett come to be in Henry's employment in the first place? He and his family were a good example of the kind of social mobility that was just becoming possible, albeit on a limited scale. Gilbert Beckett and his wife Matilda were Normans, and probably from families of some minor knights. Gilbert chose to make his fortune by becoming a merchant in textiles, and by the 1120s, Gilbert had made it pretty big owning a large 40-foot by 110-foot house in Cheapside in London and becoming a significant dignitary, including probably serving a term as sheriff. We know where the house was, actually, between Ironmongers Lane and Old Jewry in London. If anyone happens to be down there, why not look for one of those plaque things and send in a photo? Anyway, Thomas was Gilbert's son and was raised in this atmosphere, pushy, commercial. Gilbert was keen for his son to have a better start in life, so saw to it that young Thomas got an education. Now, while I hate to digress during a digression, it's worth mentioning a few things about education in the Middle Ages generally. Specifically, that the idea of an education was by this time no longer such an extraordinary thing. While it was still perfectly possible to get by in life without a formal education, like William the Marshal, for example, it was more and more becoming the norm. And in addition, there was a rising demand for the literate, certainly in the king's administration, but also in the growing households of nobles and the church. So schools appeared to support the need. The chronicler Odoric Vitalis, for example, started school at five, 
and over the period, there are about 30 schools mentioned all over the countries, from major centres to small places like Yarm. Many of these schools depended on the enthusiasm of the local parish priest to exist, but the larger ones were attached to a local monastery or cathedral. You won't be surprised to learn that there was at that point no national curriculum, though essentially the acquisition of Latin was the main aim. Now, I don't know how many teachers there are out there, but I suspect the language of teaching was slightly different. We hear nothing of raising attainment, personalisation, collaborative learning or social media, of mentoring or of coaching. There was general consensus amongst the teaching fraternity of how to deal with the problem of student engagement and motivation, for example. So here is a quote from Reginald, a monk of Durham, writing in 1170. In Norham, there is an ancient church dedicated to St Cuthbert, in which, according to the custom now quite common and familiar, boys would at times devote themselves to study, stirred by the love of learning as well as the fierce blows of the schoolmaster. Even in those days, of course, students knew just how to respond, stealing the key, in this case, to the church door and chucking it into the River Tweed. Higher education was also developing, though the university as we recognise it now isn't yet formed. Essentially what you have in Oxford, for example, from at least as early as 1096, are a series of schools run by individual masters. These schools taught the arts, as they were known, which were split into the trivium, i.e. grammar, logic and rhetoric, and the quadrivium, i.e. arithmetic, geometry, music and astronomy. You could keep going and get into law, theology or medicine. England played its part in the European development of higher education, but the big European centres of learning were Paris and Bologna, with Paris being the main destination of choice for English students, so much so, in fact, that over a third of the students in Paris were English. Other centres of learning were Exeter, Lincoln and Northampton, though, of course, in Northampton's case, this was to be a false dawn. Henry III banned the university that emerged there in 1265 to protect Oxford, and the light of learning was extinguished until the arrival of Nene College in 1974. In 1209, a student killed a woman in Oxford and fled. His roommates were arrested and hanged. In protest, almost the entire body of students and masters left and settled in Cambridge, and so Cambridge University was born. OK, so that's the end of my digression within a digression, so let's get back to the original digression. As I remember, in this particular digression, we were talking about Thomas's early life. So, Thomas went to school at about the age of 10, and then went to Paris when he was 20. His general education of life continued. We are told that he learnt hawking and hunting from a family friend at his estates in Sussex. His dad then got him a job in the household of another family friend, but then, more significantly, he got him a job in the household of Theobald of Beck, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he did pretty well there. Theobald used him for several missions and also sent him to the University of Bologna. He rose through the ranks, becoming an archdeacon. Now then, Theobald had a cunning plan. The Chancellorship of England had become vacant. Why not get one of his placement into the household of the king? That would surely help Theobald's cause with Henry. And so he managed to get Thomas in there in 1155. And there's a rather nice symmetry to that. Theobald has the same idea as Henry was to have later, both with exactly the same result. The plan crashed and burned. And so begins the story of Henry and Thomas. As Chancellor of England, Thomas and Henry are reputed to have got on like a house on fire. There's general agreement that the only interest they didn't share was sex, i.e. Henry follows the proud tradition of kings who play away with enthusiasm. Thomas just doesn't seem to have been interested. But apart from that, they seem to have been well in tune. Now, there are about a billion views people take about Thomas, but let's pick two broad camps. If we take the sinner approach, Thomas is a chameleon, 
and a man of high ambition who searches after perfection. Whether it's Chancellor or Archbishop, he does nothing by halves and is obstinate and bloody-minded in his pursuit of perfection. On the other hand, if we take the saint approach, Thomas is a man of high principle who's been forced by his background to live a life of ostentation that's alien to him. Then, when becoming the Archbishop, he was at last able to follow his real star. Oh, and he's obstinate and bloody-minded in his pursuit of principle. So, as Chancellor, there are a couple of stories that reach down to us. In 1158, Henry sent Thomas on a delegation to Louis VII in Paris during a period of reconciliation. Thomas cut quite a dash, with a magnificent entourage of 200 horses, knights, clerks, stewards and squires. Eight wagons, each drawn by five horses as well. There were 250 footmen at the front who marched along singing English songs. And then there were the huntsmen, the hounds and the falcons, and finally the household officials. They brought with them barrels and barrels of English ale. Actually, what this was, was an exercise in rubbing the French noses in it, demonstrating just how much richer Henry was than Louis. Now, the sinner view of this occasion is that this is demonstrating Thomas's love of ostentation, and there's no doubt Thomas ran a glittering household. The same point of view is that it was Thomas's job anyway to look magnificent. So tricky. Incidentally, I rather like this story because it's quite interesting how the Englishness of the delegation is stressed, specifically English beer, English songs, rather than a, a French Angevin approach. Anyway, the other story is the one about the cloak. So Henry and Thomas are out and about, messing around like a couple of kids as they were apparently wont to do. They see an old poor man in the bitter cold, and Henry offers him a cloak. And then he tries to get Thomas to give the man his cloak. Thomas suggests, in fact, that Henry should give him his own cloak, and an undignified struggle ensues, which eventually Henry wins. Now the sinner faction point to obstinacy on Thomas's part. The saint faction to the fact that he does give way in the end. And anyway, Henry was being far from sensitive himself at the time. So anyway, while all this is going on, the 1160s are a time of consolidation for Henry. As we said, he's still young, aggressive and looking to assert his rights. But I don't think you should see Henry as a conqueror type, by the way. He generally seems to despise war for war's sake. But he most certainly had a clear view of his responsibility to assert the rights of the family firm. So it's for this reason that he picks a fight with Louis in Toulouse, though he backs off in the end. It's also the period when he's trying to enforce his will on Rhys and Griffith in Wales, without much success. And he also does similar stuff in Brittany. The situation there was that Brittany was ruled by a duke, Conan, over whom Henry claimed overlordship. This didn't sit very happily with the Bretons, and it's fair to say that they were not fully reconciled. Queen Eleanor had been left in control of the dukedom while Henry was on his Welsh adventure, but she'd been treated with contempt. So in 1166, Henry descended on them with fire and fury, deposed the Duke, forced the Bretons to pay homage to him, and took Conan's daughter and heiress Constance into his custody. Remember Constance, by the way. She will become very relevant in another few years. Through the early 1160s, Henry took direct control in Normandy, not appointing a seneschal for three years. One of the actions that stands out is a concerted attempt to reduce the power of the marcher lords throughout his empire. So we've seen that on the Welsh borders, he later begins to back his client princes, being wary of the power of the marcher lords. And the same policy is applied to the marcher lords that lay between Maine and Normandy, where he makes the local lords surrender their castles to him. And you can see why this would be sensible. I mean, the border between Maine and Normandy is now owned by the same bloke, Henry. 
So no need for a defensive frontier then. Unless, of course, Henry decides to beat himself up. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In 1161, Theobald of Beck, Archbishop of Canterbury, died. Theobald had been an archbishop through some thoroughly difficult times, notably, of course, the reign of Stephen, and he proved himself pretty canny. He'd supported Stephen, but being part of the movement that forced Stephen and Henry to come to terms by refusing to crown Stephen's son Eustace as king-in-waiting. Theobald had developed a flexible approach with Henry, not backing down on principle, but finding pragmatic answers and solutions. Nonetheless, Henry wasn't particularly happy with a few aspects of his relationship with the church and saw his chance to make some changes. Henry had a tidy mind. He didn't like ambiguity. He also had a passion for justice, which we'll come to in the future episode. Now, he felt the church wasn't pulling their weight in prosecuting criminal clerks. The background to this is in 1080, the Conqueror had introduced the French model for church liberties into England. This meant that the church had their own set of courts to implement church or canon law. Henry would clearly have much preferred the Anglo-Saxon model, where all cases went through the same hundred courts and received the same justice. Unfortunately, Henry hadn't helped his own position by giving way to Archbishop Theobald in the matter of a chap called Archdeacon Osbert. Now, Archdeacon Osbert had been accused in Stephen's reign of poisoning his boss, the Archbishop of York, possibly after some particularly difficult performance appraisal session. Stephen had insisted that a crime of this magnitude needed to be tried by the royal courts, but with the help of the Pope, Theobald had managed to get the case heard by the church courts. Henry had, in fact, agreed to this, but he quickly regretted it. So this is the nub of the big barney that follows with Thomas. It's a dispute that reflects the changing role of church and state, and how that gradually gets worked through into rules that both parties can live with, with the odd flashpoint along the way. This is a dispute with form, of course. The Anglo-Saxons and William I had basically had no problem with the whole thing. In Anglo-Saxon England, church and state were so intimately entwined that no one knew where one ended and the other started anyway. In William I's time, you just did what William I told you to do, or you got harried like the North, so that was an easy enough rule to follow. But the church reforms of the 11th century had built up a head of steam, so that even Henry I had had to concede the principle that the king had authority only over the church temporalities, i.e. their lands and so on. He was no longer their spiritual leader. They'd worked on a compromise on church appointments. The king had a right to advise, but no more. The decision was a free election by the church. Now, Henry I had known what he was about. During his rule, there'd be no rubbish about that free and fair election stuff to important church posts. These were, after all, important men in the rule of the kingdom, and Henry was going to choose them. Now, Henry II had exactly the same attitude. There is a quite delightful writ which illustrates the thing perfectly. And mind you, this writ is from 1172, which is after Thomas had died. So here we go. Henry, King of the English, to his faithful monks of the Church of Winchester, greeting. 
we order you to hold a free election, but nevertheless forbid you to elect anyone except Richard my clerk, the Archdeacon of Poitiers. Isn't that just perfect? Not a lot of subtlety or room for doubt there. I think you'll agree. So when Theobald died in 1161, Henry saw this as an opportunity. Why not get his own man in place as Archbishop? And then they can work together to sort this thing out and come to a sensible division of responsibilities. Hey, I know, thought Henry. What about Thomas? He's a mate. We can work well together. When he heard, Thomas was absolutely horrified at the thought. And to do him credit, he pointed out to Henry that the result would be that they'd grow to hate each other. So whatever he later thought, Henry had to admit that he'd been warned. Meanwhile, everyone else in the church thought the appointment of Thomas was an appalling idea. He wasn't even a proper cleric. What about the theologian and abbot Gilbert Folio, for example, a man respected and admired? This Thomas bloke is quite clearly a man in love with mammon and a placement of the king. If the concept of marching around St Paul's with placards had been invented in the 12th century, the bishops would have been out on the streets. Henry wasn't listening. He had his answer, and what he wanted he generally got. So Thomas was made a priest on the 2nd of June and became Archbishop on the 3rd of June, 1162, consecrated by our old mate Henry of Bois, Bishop of Winchester. On the face of it, nothing changed. The Archbishop's table was as well stocked as the Chancellor's had been, and he surrounded himself with bright young scholars of the Church. But, unbeknownst to Henry, under his finery, Thomas had started to wear a hair shirt. Henry had a bit of a surprise when Thomas resigned his Chancellorship. Henry hadn't seen the need, but the truth was that Thomas had a new loyalty and had no desire to mix his loyalties up. As a good theory, I think, that Beckett wanted acceptance. And given the disputed nature of his elevation, he was now on the hunt for an opportunity to show Henry that he was his own man, and to show the bishops and the English church that he was a worthy archbishop. He started this pretty quickly, reasserting the tax rights of Canterbury, for example, against the king, and causing offence by handing down a sentence of banishment to a convicted clerk, a punishment that was normally reserved to the king. I mean, all the reasons why Becket made himself difficult are a bit arcane and to be brutal more than a bit dull, but the point is that there's no room for doubt that Becket was a bishop looking for an excuse for a bust-up. And then, along came a particularly good chance to demonstrate his squeaky-clean leader of the church credentials. In October 1163, Henry held court at Westminster, and he was determined to get it clear that churchmen should be subject to his secular courts. So he proposed to Thomas and the bishops that once a clerk had been convicted by a church court, they should then be handed over to a secular court to have justice handed out. And this looks like a reasonable compromise, surely. Also, Henry thought. Clerics are protected from overzealous lay lords on the one hand by being able to be tried in their own courts, but all the guilty then have one standard of justice applied. Thomas told him, in no uncertain terms, to sling his hook, and his bishop supported him. Characteristically, Thomas made a grand and provocative claim. The clergy, he said, are set apart from the nations of men. The meeting didn't end very well. Henry tried to trick the bishops by asking them to swear an unconditional oath to abide by the existing customs of England because he was pretty confident that those customs supported his case. So the old bishops went into a huddle and all agreed that they'd say yes, they would swear to observe these customs, but not when they affected the church. So what Becket swore was, I'm ready for your honour and good pleasure, which was fine, but then added the subclause, saving my order, which was the equivalent of keeping your fingers crossed. Now generally speaking, you don't bandy words with the king, and particularly not this one. 
Henry didn't like this little subcause one little bit, and he interviewed each bishop individually, trying to browbeat them into acceptance. But when they remained firm, he stormed furiously out of the meeting and didn't come back, accusing the bishops that they'd formed a conspiracy against him. Now this would sound like a good moment to back off a little. But Henry was not the backing off type. Nothing daunted by this little setback, he decided that maybe this was a communication issue. After all, all he'd done is shout at bishops for two days. Maybe he'd simply not been clear enough. After all, it surely couldn't be that they actually disagreed with him, could it? But he did decide that it was time for some diplomatic activity, and he started with a personal appeal to his former protégé, meeting him outside Northampton, where he appealed to Thomas's gratitude and affection. Have I not raised you from the poor and humble to a pinnacle of honour and rank? How could it be that you are now not only not grateful, but oppose me at every turn? Beckett wasn't buying it, and refused to either acknowledge his debt or back down. So next, Henry tried to go round the obstacle, and started to work Beckett's supporters. So far, as you'll have noticed, the church was remarkably united in the face of the king's demands, But between October 1163 and January 64, Henry managed to convince three churchmen that all this intransigence was completely unnecessary, that he did never anyway force them to do anything that went against their order. These three were the Archbishop of York, Hilary of Chester, and crucially, Gilbert Folio, Bishop of London. They went along and spoke to Beckett and they talked him round. All this work meant that at a meeting between Thomas and Henry at Woodstock, north of Oxford, Beckett caved in. He said to the king, I will observe the customs of the kingdom in good faith, and in other respects I will be loyally obedient in all things as is decent and just. Excellent, job done, congratulations everyone. So now I expect we can put this little dispute behind us and get on with it. Not a bit of it. As far as Henry was concerned, he'd been publicly defied, and therefore the retraction needed to be public too. Plus, it all felt too messy to Henry's tidy mind. So, after mature consideration and looking at all the angles, he decided to force the issue. One of the problems with the English customs is that they'd never been written down. So he compiled a set of articles defining the custom of the land in the matters of church-state relations, a set of articles that became to be known as the Constitutions of Clarendon. Now, in my current rash of enthusiasm for reproducing the original documents, I have posted an annotated set of these articles on our website, which you of course know is called thehistoryofengland.com. So you can hear the voice of Henry II and Thomas Beckett reaching down to you across the centuries. And then in 1164, he invited Thomas and his bishops and leading barons along to a shindig at Clarendon, near Salisbury in the south of England. I can imagine this was one party invitation that the bishops didn't enjoy getting, but nonetheless they all turned up, no doubt looking forward to a full and frank exchange of views. These written articles were sprung on them and came as a terrible shock to Thomas and his bishops. Making some general vow about vague and entirely debatable customs was one thing, signing up to a specific set of articles was quite another. And it was clear that there were things about these articles that were not going to be acceptable. Firstly, it was very difficult to put something as vague and plastic as customs of England into a document. Secondly, the thinking of the church had evolved since the time of Henry I. Some of the articles were simply no longer reasonable. The flashpoint was the debate about the king's right to try convicted clerks in secular courts, but two other clauses in particular were downright offensive. So the church would not be able to pronounce excommunication without the king's say-so, and the church couldn't appeal directly to the Pope without the king's consent. These were both fundamental issues. But at Clarendon, the pressure was intense. 
For three days, Henry piled on the pressure, while the secular lords backed him up and threatened the bishops. But the bishops stood firm together, and then Thomas bottled it. Without consulting his bishops, he suddenly gave way, took the oath, and instructed his bishops to do the same. In all the later recriminations, Thomas would accuse his bishops of failing to support him. Gilbert Folio had absolutely no sympathy, and from this point on, this very influential bishop was not in the Becket bucket. In a letter to Thomas, Gilbert responded to Becket's accusations. It was the general of our army who deserted, the captain of our camp that fled. Our Lord of Canterbury, who parted with the company and council of his brethren, and deliberating apart for a while, returned to tell us, It is the Lord's will that I forswear myself, submit for the present, and take a false oath, to do penance for it hereafter as I may. We were thunderstruck when we heard it, clinging to each other in astonishment. So what on earth was in Thomas's mind? I mean, after all, he was where he wanted to be, in the middle of a dispute with the support of all his bishops. And later on, he was to display vast, inexhaustible reserves of obstinacy. So was this just a moment of weakness? Or was he playing some clever game where he pretended to play along just to get out of that place in Clarendon? Because whatever the reason, he didn't even wait to get home before he recanted. He stopped by the side of the road, put on the robes of the penitent, gave himself a good talking to, and handed out a penance for himself. Now I wasn't there, but I have no doubt that Henry was incandescent with rage. His first approach was to try to get round Thomas again by appealing to the Pope. Now, Alexander the Pope was in a tricky political situation, with an anti-Pope lying around. And he and Henry were later to prove that all of this could have been sorted out amicably. But he had no intention at this point of throwing his archbishop to the wolves, and Henry got absolutely no change out of him. And what are we to make of Henry's approach to all of this? As far as the constitutions themselves are concerned, it's pretty clear that Henry wasn't trying to take powers away from the church. They are genuinely defensive and appeal to maintain the traditional powers of the crown that were under pressure from the church. But his methods were hideously aggressive. Neither he nor Thomas ever gave diplomacy a chance. And it's scarcely possible to exaggerate what a massive change all of this was. The medieval polity was all about collaboration between church and state. The state lent its protection to the church. The church lent its spiritual support to the crown. Thomas and Henry were turning all of that on its head. Up to now, Henry's motivation had been to assert the legitimate rights of the throne. From now on, his objective was to assert the legitimate rights of the crown and get Thomas out of the way. Now it was personal. Next week, we'll hear more about Henry and Thomas's tiff and how bother with the bishops became murder in the cathedral. And meanwhile, thanks very much again, everyone, for listening. Have a great week, everybody, and good luck. See you next week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.